Good evening, everybody. Hello, welcome to another episode of Mormonism Live. How are you tonight, Mr. Real? I am incredible, RFM. It's been a great week. Uh, life treating you well? Oh, absolutely. Better than I deserve. Excellent. What's, uh, what's new in your world? Well, the same stuff that's been new since the beginning of the year, continuing to work on Brush Up Your Shakespeare on its own channel, which is also on the um, Mormon Discussions uh, platform. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we're doing that once a week, covering Hamlet. It's a lot of fun, getting great response. Um, and then there's the Mormon Sunday School that you and I are both doing. I covering the Come Follow Me manual on a weekly basis, and you going over the Investigator manual and comparing a prior version of the same from 1979, I think it is, with the current version and seeing what changes there are, what is said, what is different, and what is left out. And I think I'm just finding my groove. This morning I released like the fourth one on, I watched it. on free agency, mm -hmm. and we played a little clip. No, no, you Becca. mean moral agency. Uh, no, 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 you mean representative agency. Which also isn't in the scriptures. <laughs> did you see the comment I left? I did. <laughs> That's why I was saying it. We released that this morning, and uh, I thought, I really did think that that was the best of the group that I've done so far. So I feel like I'm really starting to figure out how to approach this. And I think yours are fantastic, and that shows up because you're getting about uh, one and a half or two and a half times the views that I'm getting on mine. So I'm a little jealous. Uh, well, you, you're putting you out came along a little bit later. Yeah, we can say that, but you're just putting out great stuff as Radio Free Mormon always does. And so everybody uh, gets that joke, okay? So everybody gets a joke. That's a little bit too much inside baseball. In your show, you're talking about free agency in the manual. You play a clip or read a quote from Boyd K. Packer where he starts drawing a line between free agency and moral agency and makes a point of saying that the expression free agency does not appear in the scriptures. Then you go to the famous outtake from Elder Bednar where he changes it from free agency to moral agency, and then he changes it to representative agency. That's what it is that we really have. It's gone from free to moral to representative agency, and I put the comment saying, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that representative agency doesn't appear in the scriptures either. No, and when you place, when you show some of the quotes from early Mormonism, not even that early, really, 1980s, 1990s, you end up with, general authorities and apostles, members of the first presidency in general conference saying that in order for uh, the, the principle of agency to be true, you have to be able to choose what you want. And then Elder Bednar goes, well, no matter what agency isn't, you get to choose what you want. You still have to do what you're told to do. Yeah. <laughs> he actually has come around to what Orson Scott Card had put in his book, Saint Speak, which was a devil's dictionary of Latter-day Saint terms with funny uh, clever definitions yeah. uh, patterned after Ambrose Bierce's Devil's Dictionary. And when it came to free agency, he defined it as the freedom to do what you're told to do. That's, yeah. That was a joke in the 70s or the early 80s when that came out. But now Elder Bednar is making the joke a reality. I'm it sorry, did you say something, Bill? No, my dog. I've got my puppy in here. It's It's really a flaw. My wife goes bowling on Wednesdays. That's when her women's league is. And so I'm limited to just me and the puppy. And uh, I could let him roam the house, but he's still at that stage where he will chew things up. He chewed up a quart of mine that I had to order, reorder. It was 80 bucks to reorder it. Um, so I have to keep him in here. He will bark from time to time. I, I'm really sorry. I know it's annoying and I wish it wasn't. And I would be frustrated if it was somebody else, but I'm stuck. So you're saying he's between zero and 15 years old if he's still chewing on things. He would well, yeah, have a lot to look forward to. 
I hope that stops because uh, he's only four months old. So we'll see what happens. And at any time I knock, if I knock on a desk, he thinks there's somebody at the front door and he, he loses his, uh, loses his wits for a moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's jump into the show for tonight. Uh, folks last week we did part one of the Rigdon Spalding theory. We examined the best of evidence. We got through about two thirds, maybe a little less than two thirds. So we'll explore the rest tonight. Uh, I'll give you just a brief overview. Uh, not necessarily wanting to put a bunch of the stuff up, but um, I will just mention, uh, and thank you, Maven, for the note. So first off, we examined the evidence that placed Rigdon in Pittsburgh. To me, one of the most important pieces of evidence there was the postmaster's uh, daughter and then the next postmaster's wife, same lady. She just happened to be the postmaster's daughter and then married the next postmaster and was his wife. And she distinctly remembers Rigdon and the other associates from the print shop coming into the post office. Uh, so that was interesting, but there was a several other pieces of evidence that placed Rigdon uh, in Pittsburgh, including uh, unclaimed letters in 18... 1816, I think it was. In one, in fact, in one. Yep, 1816. And uh, it had Spalding and Rigdon both uh, having a letter on that same newspaper uh, unclaimed. I thought that was interesting. The second one was that we shared the evidence of Rigdon being in possession of the Spalding's, Spalding manuscript. There were numerous people, including Mrs. Spalding and her daughter, who distinctly remember uh, Mr. Spalding claiming that a Sidney Rigdon had likely taken the manuscript. And then Rigdon has uh, their statements out there from uh, folks in Spalding's area or Rigdon's area claiming that they had heard Rigdon talking about having a document, working on something, and uh, he would pull uh, the document out sometimes and and show it to guests or whatnot. But uh, and, and then so there's that. And then the last one was that Rigdon in Smith, Joseph Smith Jr., the prophet of the Restoration, had met before 1831. And the best evidence there, we had the old view is that we used to think that the Spalding Rigdon theory was sort of invented about the time. Philastris Hurlbut uh, and Eber D. Howe were working on Mormonism Unveiled. And so that places it at 1833, 1840, or 1834. But we found, and this wasn't us, it was something that was discovered uh, some time ago, but it was a newspaper from 1831 that places Rigdon and Joseph Smith in relationship with each other. And so uh, there's that. And so there was other evidence in each of those categories as well. We really highly suggest you go back and listen to part one. So tonight, we're going to jump into part two. Any thoughts on last week and transitioning to tonight's episode, RFM? One thought, and that is about this manuscript, right? The manuscript found, which got lost, ironically. Solomon Spaulding's manuscript, which was supposed to be at the printer's office, right? And he left it there so that it would, uh, he probably went to get the money together to get it published, which he never did. And it appears that some stories never report this manuscript as ever missing. But it's just that sit that uh, people then later on think the Book of Mormon resembles that manuscript, and therefore they sort of make up this story that Sidney Rigdon must have must have taken the manuscript, cribbed it, copied it, whatever he had to do with it, take it down to the Kinkos, and then replaced it. And then there were some other stories that indicated that Sidney Rigdon just stole it straight out. Do I have that correct, Bill? 
Yeah, I think the essential story is that it's left at the print shop and he steals it from there. But as you point out, it's also possible that Spalding dies, the print shop sort of goes bankrupt, and it's possible that he essentially just, you know, got it in some other way that as they're getting rid of things and closing shop. Yeah, as between the two stories, I was thinking about this later on in the evening after last week's show and thinking about the different stories between uh, Sidney Rigdon stealing it or Sidney Rigdon stealing it and then replacing it, right? And I thought, which one of those stories is most likely to be the earliest and therefore most likely to be the original story, right? And it came to me like a bolt out of the blue, and I hope that Dan Vogel will agree with me on this, and I hope you will too. Obviously, the one that came first and earliest is the story that is the least likely to have occurred, the one that makes the least sense. And the one that makes the least sense is that it was never missing. And so they hypothesized that he stole it, and then he must have replaced it. The one that makes more sense is he stole it, and then he kept it. So I think that one came later. Yeah, and there are some eyewitness statements that said that there was one manuscript, it was left at the print shop, brought back and put in the chest, and the chest was found in Hawaii, you know. And then the other is that he had lots of manuscripts, he worked on lots of different writings, and the manuscript story, Conneaut Creek, that we do have is just one of those, it's not the one, and hence we should still be open to another missing document, as you point out. Right, um, because he's writing all sorts of different manuscripts about the same story. Yeah. And so, oh, by the way, if that wasn't clear enough, and Bill, I think it might have been for you, but let me make it clear. If you have two versions of the same story and you're going back and looking at them, the natural tra trajectory of a story is that when it gets retold, it's going to get retold to make more sense and to be more believable. And therefore, I am presuming that the story that is the least believable or the one that makes the least sense or the one that is uh, makes the point the weakest for the people who are proposing it, i.e. that Sidney Rigdon stole it, is the one where they never saw him steal it. It was never gone. They were just presuming he did because of the similarities they believe they saw between the two, the Book of Mormon and the manuscript. Yeah, and some of the eyewitness statements were sort of presumptuous, not that they knew firsthand that something had happened, but that they suspected that Sidney right. Rigdon had taken it. All right, so now so we're going to jump- blamed for everything. He does, um, and he'll get blamed for a few more things tonight. But on the screen, hopefully this will come up okay. So last week we ended talking about some of the neighbors of Joseph Smith who claimed that they had seen Sidney Rigdon uh, in town around 1827. Again, Rigdon said, I didn't know anything about Spalding. I didn't know anything about this manuscript. Uh, I didn't know anything about Mormonism until until later than, than this theory requires uh, for him to. Uh, but I do want to note the neighbors of Joseph Smith, Lorenzo Saunders on multiple occasions, R.W. Alderman, uh, Abel Chase, the brother of Willard and Sally. And then we'll jump into tonight's material. Uh, and then folks, uh, I, I had reached out to Dan Vogel, who's in our chat again tonight. I'd reached out to Bryce Blanken. I'd reached out to Bryce Blankenagel. I'd asked them both if we could maybe do an episode next week. Dan's hoping we could push it back a week or two. Uh, so I'll talk to you, RFM, after this episode and see if how we can coordinate that. But our hope is at some point we'll have Bryce Blankenagel and Dan Vogel on, both of them sort of taking a side on this theory and sharing their insights about what we shared because both of them are watching it. Dan's watching it live and Bryce watched episode one a day or two later after last week's episode, and he'll watch this week's. 
They'll both come on and share their insights about the things that we shared and give us some feedback on what was less or more credible than what we presented it. And I think that'll be an interesting episode as well. Tonight, uh, we're going to start with the uh, inference of pre-existing relationship between Smith and Rigdon. So last week, we shared sort of some uh, claimed direct evidence that Smith and Rigdon had uh, associated with each other prior to uh, the uh, meeting in 1831, 1830. December and, 1830 is yep. the church's position, the standard historical position of that was the first time that Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon met after Sidney Rigdon was approached by Parley P. Pratt in Ohio, read the Book of Mormon in like 14 days or something, and then went out to visit Joseph Smith in New York before, right before Joseph Smith transferred to Ohio. Yeah, these are going to be more uh, like internal evidences around Mormon theology, Mormon scripture, and other things within Mormonism that sort of suggest that there might be a connection uh, between uh, Rigdon and Smith uh, earlier. And so there's a couple of things up there on the screen, but we'll get into sort of each of these. So let's start with RFM. I'm going to turn some time over to you and we'll go through this section with you taking the lead. This is some evidence that you found in terms of what the scriptures say in ways that sort of seem convenient for the Rigdon Spalding theory. Had you wanted to come back to that slide that you had up a second ago? Mm -hmm. um, Rigdon gets immediate co-equal billing and acts as if he's in charge. We'll talk a little bit about that. Rigdon immediately collaborates on new scripture, Book of Moses, inspired translation of the Bible, DNC, uh, example section 76. Um, David Whitmer will go to some of the material from him where he is sort of skeptical of why Rigdon has such influence. And he's also at the same time sort of disturbed by Mormonism claiming earlier experiences that give authority when in reality he's there and the right in the thick of it and none of that was happening while he was there uh, Peter and then, James and John story yep and then the book of commandments and book of mormon limit uh joseph smith's respective role uh, and also whoever the spokesman is which we'll get to and there's an appeal to the latter-day saints I, I put that image up there because uh there was a pamphlet that got uh produced where rigdon is sort of behind it but it's, he's not the actual front people publishing it. And Rigdon's, uh, what's laid out there is that Rigdon, Rigdon really was the person who was supposed to take over. And the theology sort of sets Rigdon as the right-hand man of Joseph Smith. Hence, we'll get into uh, some of that. Do you want to say anything about this slide here before I go into the next one? No, I think that's a good map of what we're covering tonight. Great. Okay, so 2 Nephi chapter 3, RFM. Second, thank you. Second Nephi chapter three. Interestingly, this is part of the subject matter for this week's Sunday school. So I've been do doing a lot of study on this uh, just today, and it yielded uh, tender mercies because some of those insights are applicable to tonight's discussion as well. So Second Nephi chapter three is a purported prophecy of Joseph of old, Joseph in Egypt. Yes, that Joseph from the book of Genesis where he prophesies about someone who's going to be raised up by the Lord from his descendants. And that person will be named Joseph as well. And that Joseph will be named after his father, who presumably will also be named Joseph. It's starting to sound like Joseph Smith. And uh, let's see, he says, it talks in terms of a spokesman. Okay. So verse seven, yea, Joseph truly said, that's Joseph of Egypt. And this is Lehi quoting him. 
Thus saith the Lord unto me, this is Joseph speaking, Joseph of ancient Egypt. Thus saith the Lord unto me, a choice seer, will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loins, and he shall be esteemed highly among the fruit of thy loins. Did that expression ever bother you? Uh, anytime we're talking loins, uh, I'm either deeply interested or deeply grossed out. Which is it here? Uh, it's a little gross and creepy. Well, they say, he said over and over again. Sometimes I would change it in my mind. Fruit of thy looms, just to sort of get past that. Yeah, but the fruit of thy loins. By the way, I think there's a reason for the choice of that language, and I'll go over that in Sunday school. And unto him will I give commandment that he shall do a work for the fruit of thy looms, his brethren, which shall be of great worth unto them, even to the bringing of them to the knowledge of the covenants which I have made with thy fathers. And I will give unto him a commandment that he shall do none other work, save the work which I shall command him. Make a point of remembering that. Mark that verse. And I will give unto him a commandment that he shall do none other work, save the work which I shall command him. This is about Joseph Smith now. And I will make him great in my eyes, for he shall do my work. And then in verse 17, skipping over, and the Lord said, hath said, I will raise up a Moses. This is still in this prophecy of Joseph of old. I will raise up a Moses, and I will give Moses, and I will give power unto him in a rod, and I will give judgment unto him in writing. Yet I will not loose his tongue, that he shall speak much, for I will not make him mighty in speaking. But I will write unto him my law by the finger of mine own hand. That's the Ten Commandments, right? And I will make a spokesman for him. Okay. Now it's going to tie the spokesman, who's Aaron, that God's going to provide for Moses in this prophecy of Joseph, to Joseph. Because he's going to get spokesman too. Anything Moses gets, Joseph Smith gets. And the Lord said unto me also, I will raise up unto the fruit of thy looms, and I will make for him a spokesman. And I, behold, I will give unto him that he shall write the writing of the fruit of thy looms unto the fruit of thy looms, and the spokesman of thy looms shall declare it. There it is, the spokesman. Yeah, so there's that one. And then we've got, and for folks who are wanting to find this, this would be Doctrine and Covenants 5, but then to see the original, which is different, you'll have to go to Book of Commandments number 4. And So RFM, take, uh, take this one. Right, and if you go back to what it was talking about, that, that verse that I said to Mark, remember where it says... Um, he shall do none other work, save the work which I shall command him. Okay? So go over here now to that Doctrine and Covenants, or I should say Book of Commandments, chapter. Chapter 4, verse 2. Um, so I'm going to the one that's on the right first, where it says, so this is 1833. This is the publication of, of a revelation that was received in 1829. But it is published this way in 1833 in the Book of Commandments. It gets changed in the Doctrine and Covenants in 1835. We'll get to that in a second. And now, behold, this shall you say unto him, I, the Lord, am God, and I give unto, and I have given these things unto my servant Joseph, and I have commanded him that he should stand as a witness of these things. Nevertheless, I have caused him that he should enter into a covenant with me, that he should not show them except I command him, and he has no power over them, except I grant it unto him. Okay, here's the point. And he has a gift to translate the book. And I have commanded him that he shall pretend to no other gift, for I will grant him no other gift, period. So by the time this is published now, republished in 1835 in the Doctrine and Covenants, that is changed. And now chapter 
4 of the Book of Commandments has been reorganized into Section 5 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is our current Doctrine and Covenants. You can look it up. And it says this now, and you have a gift to translate the plates. And this is the first gift that I bestowed upon you. Wait a second, where was that? Oh, that wasn't in there before. This is the first gift that I bestowed upon you. And I have commanded you that you should pretend to no other gift until my purpose is fulfilled in this. For I will grant unto you no other gift until it is finished. So some language added to that revelation. The first revelation seems to make it clear your only job is to write the Book of Mormon and translate it. Boom, done, you're in, that's your gift. Now Doctrine and Covenant section 5 in 1835 adds language to say, yeah, that's not your only gift. Actually, you've got lots of gifts. This is just the first gift. And once you're done with it, then you've got other things to do. It reminds me of the church lady. Isn't that convenient? Because in the section 4, chapter 4 of the Book of Commandments, as you're pointing out, God, the voice of God, who doesn't change, he's consistent, he doesn't change his mind, except for the November policy three and a half years later. But otherwise, he doesn't change his mind. He tells Joseph Smith, this is the only gift you have. You have a gift to translate the book. I've commanded you that you shall pretend to no other gift. I will grant you no other gift. And then sometime later, God says, oh, wait, wait a minute, I didn't mean that. You actually do get to do other things, so go ahead and do them, and go ahead and alter my word uh, and change it so that what it did say is now just a 180 turn from that. Mm -hmm. So there's that one. Are you ready for the next one? I believe so. Okay, so now we've got 2 Nephi 3 and the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis chapter 50. This is something that I noticed today, and I was so surprised by it that I checked it five times to make sure I was correct. We read the verse in 2 Nephi 3 before in verse 18 about the spokesman that the Lord is going to raise up for Joseph Smith. Let's just cut to the chase and abbreviate it, okay? Because that's what it means. He's going to get a spokesman just like Moses had a spokesman. Now, that's Lehi presented as quoting an extended prophecy of Joseph in Egypt that were contained, that was contained on the brass plates, okay? That's where Lehi got it from. Then in August of 1832, could have been July, probably August of 1832, Joseph Smith is part of his Joseph Smith translation in which he was going to restore all those plain and precious parts of the Bible that had been lost, like obviously this prophecy, right? Lehi couldn't be quoting it unless it existed on the brass plates. So therefore, we've got to put it in Joseph's mouth, in Genesis, in the Joseph Smith translation. And indeed, that's what Joseph Smith does. He adds quite a number of verses to Joseph Smith translation, Genesis 50. And it is the same prophecy. So the idea being that even though it is now three years later, it's a little bit over three years later, that he is translating Genesis chapter 50, He's putting into Genesis chapter 50 the same prophecy about Joseph that Lehi is quoting from in 2 Nephi chapter 3, which was translated in 1829. Clear enough so far? Yep. The remarkable thing is the part about Joseph Smith getting a spokesman is dropped. 
in Joseph Smith translation, Genesis 50. Now, it is clear that so many parts of this between 2 Nephi 3 and Joseph Smith translation, Genesis 50, are identical in word for word. It's clear that Joseph Smith had a copy of the Book of Mormon open in front of him. And he was just uh, cribbing from it. So, why? That's the question. Why is it that of all the things that are contained in that prophecy in 2 Nephi 3, why is it that all these things are replicated with one glaring omission, which is the part about Joseph Smith getting a spokesman too? Yeah. Um, the things I want to add here is, so I can maybe connect the dots on why we think this ties into this issue of Rigdon Spalding is that if Joseph Smith is in the scripture, the voice of God is commanding Joseph Smith to have a uh, split of the power structure. Sorry, Joseph, you don't get to do everything. You also have to have someone else who has some sort of degree of authority and power and ability and gifts just like you, you can't step on their side of things, they can't step on your side of things. And so it seems like a strange thing that Joseph Smith would allow space within the translation, if he's the author, it would seem strange that he would leave space in the translation for someone else to sort of usurp some of his power. But it's exactly what he does. Second Nephi chapter three in the Book of Mormon, uh, says that Joseph Smith will be provided a right-hand man. And that, again, as we read in the previous slide, in the early wording is that Joseph Smith of, uh, of the Doctrine and Covenants is that Joseph Smith only gets to translate the Book of Mormon and somebody else needs to sort of pick up the ball and run with it from there. That doesn't make sense if Joseph Smith is creating the Book of Mormon on his own and he wants to maintain all power and authority and keep himself always having the ability to navigate any issue without having to consult somebody or lean on someone. And so who is the spokesman? I will point out that Dan Vogel, uh, and I think to some degree, this is the most rational answer, is that Oliver Cowdery is right there with Joseph at the time. It seems more likely maybe, uh, based on church history and, and what's going on, that Oliver Cowdery is the person that the spokesman uh, is meant to uh, be meaning. But there are some, when they investigate this theory of Spalding Rigdon in that connection, is the suggestion that the spokesman is Sidney Rigdon putting his own words into the Book of Mormon so that Joseph Smith, who everybody looks at as the guy with the rock in the hat who found the plates, who translated them, Rigdon would need to put some sort of protection in there to uh, protect him from having Joseph run away with the project and leaving him behind. And this scripture sort of accomplishes that in 2 Nephi 3. As you're pointing out, RFM, by the time Joseph gets to 1832, uh, the word of God has removed this, and that doesn't make sense. We were talking on the phone before the show. If the book of Joseph, if the book of Joseph is an independent book somewhere out in the ether, again, yeah, and yes, and Joseph Smith claimed to have had it and never got translated. Um, if the book of Joseph made its way into the brass plates, we would expect to find the same story there, and we do. If the brass plates then, uh, that, that narrative of the book of Joseph made its way into uh, the Bible, those documents, then we would expect to find it there, and there are 
there are not remnants per se in the exact same way, but there is Joseph and he's a historical figure. But again, the Joseph Smith translation is restoring what had been lost. So now you get the Joseph Smith translation, Genesis 50, and now you get the book of Joseph being inserted again. Hence, you would sort of expect to find the same language in the same storyline happening. It's sort of odd that it's suddenly missing. And then book of Joseph, brass plates, Bible. The It's obvious, sorry about that again. It's obvious that it would. It also got included in the gold plates. No, not sorry, not the gold plates, but the. Um, can you explain? Sorry, I'm going to stammer here for a minute. Can you explain to folks because you get the book of Abraham, which is on the papyri, hmm. but there's also a separate document that never gets translated. That's believed to be the book of Joseph, but Joseph it's not. Said it was. But it's not the same funeral text that the book of Abraham was proposed to be translated from. Correct. Right. It's a different, it's a the different complete scroll. Different complete scroll. And so the book of Joseph makes its way into that as well. And yet we don't find the story to be consistent as we go from document to document in places where it looks like the book of Joseph should have been carried over from place to place. Does that make sense? Right. And I think uh thank you for uh going backward on what I had said because I sort of jumped that part. But when it appears in 2 Nephi 3, you've got Joseph Smith in 1829 writing a clear demarcation of tasks or abilities or responsibilities is a better way of putting it. His task is to write, and another person will be provided to preach, to be the spokesman, which indicates that Joseph Smith maybe did not have a high opinion of his ability to be his own spokesman. He needed someone else. So that's definitely there in the text, right there in 2 Nephi 3.18. The questions are, first off, did Joseph Smith have somebody specific in mind when he wrote that? It would make sense that he did. Mm -hmm. The second question is, who is that? Because we know that later on in 1833, Sidney Rigdon is going to be referred to as the spokesman for Joseph Smith. Oliver Cowdery is never referred to, to my knowledge, as the spokesman for Joseph Smith. And so then the question that is raised, and it's only a question, is did Joseph Smith write this intending it to apply to Sidney Rigdon, and how could he do that unless he knew Sidney Rigdon in the spring and early summer of 1829 when he was translating 2 Nephi chapter 3? There we go. So the second part of it is, why is it then that when he is creating for his Joseph Smith translation, the very prophecy that Lehi is quoting in the Book of Mormon, and he puts it in Genesis 50. Why does he leave out the passage about Joseph Smith having a spokesman? Now it's gone. He doesn't need no stinking spokesman anymore. So we're going to remove that from the prophecy. I'm going to period that, and then I'm going to put begin parentheses and say, which raises the additional problem of where did Lehi quote verse 18 from if it wasn't in the original prophecy in Genesis 50 in the Joseph Smith translation. That's the, that's the problem, the textual problem it creates. But, for, but we don't need to uh, go into that now. What's sufficient for our purposes is Joseph Smith was going to have a spokesman in 1829, and then by 
uh, August of 1832, that paragraph is removed from the prophecy. Yeah, and I just want to show one person's asking the comment, why would Sidney Rigdon let a punk kid take control? Because he's and, not a punk kid. Yeah, well, and, and it, Rigdon can't, if the Spalding-Rigdon theory is true, let's presume that for a moment. Mm-hmm. If Rigdon comes forward with a new text, people are going to very quickly jump on him as being very capable of having created it. Um, it's good. They're going to they're going to start to sort of be skeptical of that right away. It it would make sense if you're well, the sorry. brains. What's it's, that? It's SR. It's SR. It's not JSR. He's saying, why would Sidney Rigdon let a punk kid take control? He's referring to Joseph Smith as the punk kid. Right, right. Why would Sidney Rigdon let Joseph Smith take control? Because Rigdon needs somebody to be the dumb farm boy in the backwoods who's a treasure digger who has this fantastical story of putting a stone in a hat and finding plates, and I couldn't have translated it. I'm just a dumb kid, right? And then the book comes forth, and now Rigdon can sort of assume power, um, but he he's not the one who originated the book, so you can't put it on me. You can't you can't point your finger at me for being the one that created it. It was this kid with mystical powers who did it. That sort of makes sense to me. You do need somebody to sort of come up with the Book of Mormon in terms of producing it, but not have the ability to do it. Joseph Smith is the per- perfect culprit for that, and it allows Rigdon some cover as he then comes in as the, Joseph Smith's right hand man, and as these scriptures then would do give Rigdon the ability to take control back from Joseph Smith. I want to say two things about this question. First off, it's a good question, especially when I understand what he's talking about, the SR Sidney Rigdon, right? It's a good question. However, we always have to, or at least I always have to stop when I ask questions myself like that and remind myself that after 63 years of practicing criminal law, it is sometimes a fool's errand to ask why people do things because People do the damnedest things that you may never do, that you would never do, but they do. So sometimes it's like, why ask why? Because people do crazy things that we wouldn't do. So it's it's a good question. It's not necessarily a productive question in my view. I think the interesting thing is, reversing it, why would Joseph Smith allow Sidney Rigdon to take control? And yet that appears to be exactly what happened. And that's what we're going into here presently. Yeah. Yep. So we'll move on to the next slide. Um, We're going to kind of go to a different direction and then we'll come back and visit these scriptures once again. I just want to note one of the weirdest things in Mormonism and all of us, especially those of us, I think who are older, were raised with this strange story and we sort of go like, wow, isn't that amazing? I lived in Sandusky, Ohio. I was about an uh, hour and 15, 20 minutes uh, west of Kirtland, Ohio. So we went to Kirtland all the time. And we would go to the Newell K. Whitney store. Yeah, I love that. By the way, C.L. Cole, thank you for the uh, super chat. 1999, I love this weekly show. Thank you. Um, I went to the Newell K. Whitney store in the John Johnson farm in Hiram, Ohio, dozens of times in my you know 25 years of being in the church in Ohio. And uh, in the John Johnson farm, uh, you go up to the top of that, I believe it's that, it's that home, the John Johnson home, mm-hmm. and you get told this story because there's revelations that occur in the top of the Newell K. Whitney store as well, where Joseph and Emma lived for a while. But in the top of the John Johnson farm, you go up there and the missionary sits you down, you sit on some benches, 
and they start reading section 76 and telling you it happened here. And the way it's told to us, the way, and we'll read it here, a vision given to Joseph Smith, the prophet, and Sidney Rigdon at Hiram, Ohio, uh, February 16th, 1832, prefacing the record of this vision, Joseph Smith's history states, upon my record from Amherst Conference, I resume the translation of the scriptures from sundry revelations which had been received. It was apparent that many important points touching the salvation of man had been taken from the Bible or lost before it was compiled. By the way, that tells you right there it's not a flawed Bible commentary, it's a restoration of the Bible, um, or lost before it was compiled. It appeared self-evident from what truths were left that if God recorded every one according to the deeds done in the body, the term heaven, as intended for the saints' eternal home, must include more kingdoms than one. Uh, and they're probably referencing their uh, Corinthians, I think 2 Corinthians. Uh, it's actually 15. John 5, 29. Oh, sorry. Okay. I, okay. Know there's the, I know there's the spot in Corinthians where there's a celestial and a, t and a terrestrial, whatever. That's um, true. Saints' eternal home must include more kingdoms than one. Accordingly, while translating oh, St. John's Gospel, John's myself Gospel, yeah. and Elder Rigdon saw the following vision. And then here's what we get told. Joseph would at, interv at intervals say, what do I see? As one might say while looking out the window and beholding what all in the room could not see. And there are multiple people, six, seven, eight uh, priesthood holders, brethren in the church in that room who are witnessing this and who... Uh, to some degree or another, write about it later on in in a uniform way, say, this is what we saw. Um, so there's a sort of consistency in the story. He says, uh, then he would relate uh, what he had seen or what he was looking at. Then Sidney replied, I see the same. Presently, Sidney would say, what do I see? And repeat what he had seen or was seeing. And Joseph would reply, I see the same. So Rigdon and Smith take turns giving the word of God, uh, which makes up uh, seven, uh, section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This particular one is Philo Dibble, uh, who records this, but there are multiple uh, witnesses. I think uh, either uh, William McClellan or William Law, I think, are one of the other ones that are in the room at the time. And, I think it'd be um, too early for William Law. Okay, so William McClellan maybe. But I know that there is, again, a bunch of them there. They all state sort of the same story, and so you have to sort of wrestle with this idea of Rigdon and Joseph Smith both sharing in the responsibility to declare God's word, hence section 76, uh, to the church. But, but it's a strange thing. We talked a little bit last week. We might get into a little bit of it this week as well. There's a lot of Campbellite, Rigdon sort of... Uh, theology that makes its way into the Book of Mormon. And there, it's clear from, we'll get to David Whitmer's statement here in a, in a moment, it's very clear that Sidney Rigdon had a ton of influence on early Mormonism as he's helping or taking the lead on the uh, Inspired Bible Translation, for instance, or the uh, Book of Moses, I think, is another one that he has a hand in. And as he's doing that, it's, it occurs to me that if we had an apostasy, if things aren't right, if the Christianity had gone astray, the last thing God would want is a Campbellite minister, Sidney Rigdon, coming in with his own ideas and implementing them into Mormonism. But that seems to be, to some degree, exactly what happens. And it doesn't make much sense to me that Joseph Smith, as the prophet, 
as the one who is uh, ordained and called to to be God's mouthpiece, that that person would uh, relinquish that ability to another human being when that only opens up space for heirs and uh, things that God had already determined that were part of the apostasy to make its way back into Mormonism. And so they're sharing in this, giving this revelation, and Sidney takes a major part in giving uh, theology and and, uh, certain sorts of emphasis into Mormonism. It doesn't really make sense if God is the one leading, he really wants to have a clear message, Joseph Smith is his prophet. This also sort of lends some credibility to Rigdon is being given more power, more influence than you would think Joseph would want to give somebody or even have the appearance of. Yeah, looked at psychologically, I think what we're seeing is Joseph Smith going from a state of being less sure of himself and his abilities in 1829 and more sure of himself in the mid-1830s. And therefore, he seizes upon uh, Sidney Rigdon, regardless of when they meet, okay? He seems to seize upon Sidney Rigdon as an authority. And he sees Sidney Rigdon as knowing things about the Bible that Joseph Smith doesn't know. He knows more about religion, etc. And so he seizes upon him as an authority and he looks up to him and allows Sidney Rigdon to have that sway. In a sense, Sidney Rigdon was always uh, Dumbo's magic feather to Joseph Smith that he relies upon but he doesn't actually need. And then Joseph Smith finds out he doesn't need this feather. And maybe or maybe not, that verse goes out of um, the Joseph Smith translation about needing a spokesman. Or maybe it applies to Oliver Cowdery and it's the same thing, I don't know, because no name is attached to it. But I did wanna talk about this section 76 because here we have, this is a one-off. This is the only time this ever occurs in church history to my knowledge. Is not where Joseph Smith says, I see a vision and here it is, but it's dueling prophets. It's Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon. They're not dueling, they're working in tandem, really. And they come in there and one sees a vision and it's written down. Another person sees and says, I see that, then sees its other vision. And then the other person says, I see the same. And they end up by piecemeal, by subsequent visions that each of them are having receiving what we have is section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay, so let's presume for a second, I know this is crazy, Bill, but let's presume for a second that they weren't actually seeing anything, that this was not really a visionary experience. So if this were not really a visionary experience, one would reasonably believe that they didn't just wing it. They didn't just sit down and then start doing it, right? There almost certainly would have been some confabulation beforehand or getting together to work out the details to make sure it comes out right when they're in front of the audience, including Philo Dibble, right? That only makes sense to me. There must have been some discussion and some working out of this visionary process that they were going to perform in front of the audience, which becomes section 76. So my question is, if section 76 is, as it seems like it probably is, an example of Sidney Rigdon and Joseph Smith 
working together to produce a scriptural text. My question is, is February 16th of 1832 the first time they did that? Yeah, as we talked on the phone earlier, maybe a week ago, preparing for part one, we were talking about how section 76 in the top of the John Johnson home is really a theatrical performance. And if you don't believe the church is true, then it seems like you pointed out the most reasonable explanation is that Joseph and Sidney rehearsed this prior. And if you're rehearsing it prior, you're both sort of acknowledging nod, nod, wink, wink. We're going to pretend to get a revelation. We've already worked out the details. I'm going to go here. Then you're going to go there. And then I'm going to go here because you have to have this clear end. You can't just, like you say, be winging it off each other and not know where one of you is going to play. It's like playing uh, the game where you start a story and then you mm -hmm. add a, I'll add a part. And then the next guy adds a part. And by the time you're done, you had no clue where your original statement was going to end and it ended somewhere you could not have even imagined. They couldn't have done that here. That wouldn't have made sense. The, what makes the most sense is that they, what's it is colluded the right word? Colluded, colluded. together? Yeah, together and uh, came up with this, which means that both of them sort of know that they're not who they tell everybody else that they are, prophets right. and spokesmen for God and all of that. I, I also just want to say one more time, so I'm crystal clear, because I said a lot of stuff before and went on and on. You often use the uh, the thing from Star Trek where God, why would God need a starship? Mm -hmm. what, does God, what does God need with a starship? Yeah. Well, here it's what does God need with a Campbellite minister and his thoughts and beliefs? Um, the Good last point. thing, the last thing God of the restoration wants is the influence leaking in from a Campbellite minister, and yet that's exactly what he gets. Mm -hmm. um, it seems very counter to the church's truth claims. And it makes uh, David Whitmer, among others, very upset and concerned about Beautiful what the heck is going on. Love By it. the way, I yes. did want to say that the word I was struggling with was uh, not necessarily colluded because that's the, the cynical way of just saying collaborated, right? They collaborated yeah. together beforehand. I think it's almost certain that they must have, to some degree, collaborated beforehand. So like you said, if Sidney and Joseph are collaborating beforehand to produce scripture, is this the first time? That's all I'm asking. And the second thing is the absence of the spokesman for Joseph Smith in JST 50 versus its present in, presence in 2 Nephi 3. I don't know what this means necessarily, okay? But in the word, but like Richard Dreyfus said in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, this means something. This is important. I don't know what it is any more than he did at the time, but it does mean something. There's a reason it's not there. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so now you mentioned David Whitmer, an address yeah. to all believers in Christ. This is a one of these days that you are from you mentioned today that one of these days you're going to go into this. I had said, leading you to saying that I said, man, someday we ought to just cover this. And you said, well, I'm planning to at some point when I get to it. Um, I think this is something that really needs to be tackled, not because it hasn't been looked at before, but because there's so many interesting places in this pamphlet uh, that I think deserve some uh, entertaining and informative commentary about it. Uh, but in this address to all believers in Christ, 
by a witness to the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon. David Whitmer does this twofold thing where one is I know the Book of Mormon's true and I have some really serious issues with the sort of way that, that Joseph Smith and others built the church and some of it seems very dishonest and deceptive. And one of those is that Rigdon is, and I'll say the other one that isn't connected to this, but they sort of tie in together. David Whitmer is bothered by the fact that he is part of the close-knit group of people who are uh, restoring the church in its earliest stages. And when Joseph and Oliver claimed that they were visited by John the Baptist and later by Peter, James, and John, David Whitmer goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was there. Like, I'm, I'm with them every day. I'm hanging out. I'm part of this thing that's happening. And I never heard that. It seems like a late invention. Well, one of the other things he criticizes is Rigdon's influence and involvement. So I'll, I'll start up above. Uh, he said, likewise, concerning all these changes of which I will speak, I know that these changes were made. I was present when nearly all of the early revelations were received. There are several of the old books of commandments yet in the land. Bring them to light and see for yourselves, which we just did tonight, see for yourselves that these revelations were changed just as I tell you. These changes were made by the leaders of the church who had drifted into air and spiritual blindness. Through the influence of Sidney Rigdon, Brother Joseph was led on and on into receiving revelations every year to establish offices and doctrines which are not even mentioned in the teachings of Christ and the written word. In a few years, they had gone away ahead of the written word so that they had to change these revelations, as you will understand when I have finished. And then he goes on and talks about other changes as well. But he's noting that Sidney Rigdon had a, um, what appeared to him to be an overwhelming and undeserving influence on the church's theology uh, and its scriptural canon. And one of the offices that bugged him the most was the introduction of the office of high priest, which is really a strange office when you think about it in the church as compared to the Old Testament from which it derives. The high priest was one person on the earth at any given time. It wasn't a thing that was given to multiple people and hundreds and even thousands of people as it is today. Yeah, it also... I'm sure you know this, but we've never talked about this and we've never shared this data point on the podcast, but it is absolutely a given in the documentary history of the church that the that Joseph Smith in the uh, hierarchy of the church ordained people to the office of elder long before the uh, bestowal of the Melchizedek priesthood. And so there's this sort of like, if you don't believe it, you sort of can stand back and go, ooh, you guys accidentally put the cart before the horse here and then had to correct it later. And I think that would be very interesting to go into at some point. But there is supporting evidence of what David Whitmer is saying. Not only are the revelations altered, but there is evidence around priesthood restoration. Not only is, is it not spoken of around the time it allegedly happens, but it, there's also some confusion with the order in which offices versus the actual priesthood itself are given into the church, given to the church. Yeah, I think Thomas B. Marsh had mentioned that too. 1833, Book of Commandments. What is section 27 today? No mention of Peter, James, and John when it shows up. 
same revelation, 1835, Doctrine and Covenants. There's Peter, James, and John restoring the priesthood. And so there's a question. Uh, it's generally been presumed that Joseph Smith came up with the story of Peter, James, and John somewhere around 1834, backdated it to 1829 in order to cement his authority, which was being challenged in some way. That may be true. It also strikes me that it is possible that because Sidney Rigdon was there at the John Johnson home, I think, in June of 1831, when the Melchizedek priesthood was originally given by the voice of God, not with the appearance of any angelic beings or the laying on of hands, but Sidney Rigdon was there, and he was part of that as well with Joseph Smith, that changing that story and now making Peter, James, and John predate that event, or the bestowal of the Melchizedek priesthood through Peter, James, and John predate that event, could be seen as a way of cutting Sidney Rigdon out of the Melchizedek priesthood loop. Hmm. Interesting. And then um, from here, we jump back into the scriptures because we talked about, uh, I'll go back here a couple of slides. We talk about 2 Nephi 3. There's some language in there about this spokesman who's an important part. Joseph can only go so far. The spokesman takes it from there. Then we get to 1832 and it's gone. It's been taken out. It's not part of the uh, scriptures around Joseph of Egypt anymore. But then we get to section 100 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which occurs even later in time. It's 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 uh, closer to us now, and uh, it's suddenly back in again. Talk about this one for a moment. Right. This is October of 1833, correct? Uh, yes, October 12th of 1833. So October 12th, 1833, there is a revelation in which Sidney Rigdon is referred to as Joseph Smith's spokesman, and it's verse 11. And I will give unto thee power to be mighty in expounding all scriptures. This revelation is through Joseph Smith to Sidney Rigdon, as you can see in verse 9. That thou mayest be a spokesman unto him, and he shall be a revelator unto thee. That thou mayest know certainty, the certainty of all things pertaining to the things of my kingdom on the earth. And I think it is largely because of this passage that it has become standard in uh, Mormon church lessons to equate the spokesman to Joseph Smith from 2 Nephi 3 with Sidney Rigdon because of Doctrine and Covenants section 100 verses 9 through 11. I do note, however, and actually I think you noted this in our conversation, that verse 11, although it does say Sidney Rigdon will be the spokesman to Joseph Smith, it doesn't link it back to either 2 Nephi 3 or Joseph Smith translation of chapter 50. It doesn't link it back to this prophecy that was allegedly given by Joseph in Egypt. Yeah, it it seems as though in the earlier scripture, in fact, I'll, I'll go forward here to these, a little harder to read, so I'll make it uh, a little bigger there. In 2 Nephi 3, there's this idea that there is the spokesman who is the right-hand man of this future prophet who's going to be named Joseph after his father named Joseph. And, and, and Joseph Smith puts in, you know, God uh, God's language, somebody puts God's language saying that Joseph Smith is only a translator and ties it to this scriptural story of Joseph in Egypt. 
Then Joseph, a Joseph translation of the Bible comes, Genesis 50. It's gone. It's not there. It should be, but it's missing. Seems like there's some reason for that. As you point out, we don't really know why, but it seems sort of uh, noticeable that it's not present. Then you get to Doctrine and Covenants 100, and there's no longer the, as you pointed out, there's no longer the spokesman tied to Joseph of Egypt. It's now just a spokesman. So this is just a spokesman, maybe one spokesman among many. Certainly doesn't seem like it's as significant as how spokesman is framed in the earlier uh, conversation. And so Joseph goes back to using it, but in a more general way, less connected to Old Testament ideas, even though it's not necessarily exactly an Old Testament story. Um, And there's sort of a, I don't know, it just sort of seems a little peculiar. RFM? Sorry, I was just looking at the private chat and what's going on with Maven. Yeah. Apparently she's having trouble holding on to things. So, um, yeah, I think it does mean something. All these different permutations as it goes through. And ultimately, of course, we know it leads up to uh, quite a number of years later, Joseph Smith trying to boot Sidney Rigdon out of the first presidency. But back then when the law of um, common consent actually meant something, he wasn't allowed to because the people wouldn't sustain him in kicking Sidney Rigdon out, so he had to keep him. And then, of course, yeah. after Joseph hmm. Smith dies, Sidney Rigdon comes in. He thinks he's got a colorable claim to being the head of the church. He calls it the guardian of the church after Joseph Smith is dead. The people don't go for that, or at least the majority of people don't go for that. They go for Brigham Young. So it's a very interesting relationship that Sidney Rigdon has all along. And the question, of course, is why is it that Sidney Rigdon has this early influence with Joseph Smith, so much so that it made David Whitmer very concerned, upset, and one of the reasons that he left the church, as he writes later on. Why is it that he has all of this uh, doctrinal and theological influence over Joseph Smith right off the bat when Joseph Smith first meets him if they didn't know each other before? I mean, it's conceivable. Certainly, that's what we've been taught. But is it possible that it's because they had a relationship that predated December of 1830 when we've all been told was the first time they met? Yeah, what does it mean for the Restoration, too? We, we hit on this a couple of times, but what does it mean for the Restoration if Sidney Rigdon, his influence really is found in LDS theology, that that it's not just God going, hey, this is the way the ancient church was set up, but God goes, yeah, no, I don't have a problem with this. Sidney's more than welcome to insert some of his own ideas, some of his own beliefs, some of his own uh, intuitions around uh, what is right and wrong in Christendom. Uh, into the restoration, and I think if you're a, if you're a true believer, that's a question that has some serious consequences to it. Uh, yes, it could make you leave the church, like David Whitmer. Yeah. One of the things, and I'll point to this here next. But one of the things Whitmer says, if I remember right, is he says something like, "If you believe my testimony of the Book of Mormon, I state on this occasion that just as I knew the Book of Mormon was true." I also knew that God had called me to get away and leave the church and leave the saints and get out of there. So for what it's worth, if you believe his testimony around one thing, there's his testimony around another. Now we go to Eliza R. Snow. I only use uh, her statement 
as one of several, and I'll make the point here, in autumn of 1829, Eliza R. Snow uh, said she had heard of Joseph Smith as a prophet to whom the Lord was speaking from the heavens, and that a sacred record containing a history of the origin of the Aborigines of America was on earth. Now, what people don't know is that Eliza R. Snow was one of the congregants under Sidney Rigdon. So when... Yes, you uh, pointed that out to me, and I looked it up. I did not know that, that she was part of Sidney Rigdon's congregation. Of course, the story being that Sidney Rigdon converts to Mormonism, and then he converts his entire congregation, thus giving a whole congregation for Joseph Smith to move the saints from New York to Ohio to be welcomed by. Yeah, and uh, several of those congregants uh, mention, and we'll get to the names of those, mention that they had heard of the Book of Mormon uh, before the missionaries had come to meet with Sidney Rigdon. And if you remember, Rigdon claims that he didn't know anything about Mormonism, Joseph Smith, Book of Mormon, until the until Parley Pratt and the missionaries showed up. But several of his congregants state otherwise. And so the point here is that it seems strange that the minister doesn't know anything about Mormonism, while at the same time, several of the congregants under him uh, had heard about it. And so Eliza R. Snow uh, says that she had heard of Joseph Smith as prophet, as a prophet to, who, to whom the Lord was speaking from the heavens and that a sacred record containing the history of the origin of the Aborigines of America was unearthed. Immediately before making this disclosure, Snow stated, I was deeply interested in the study of the ancient prophets in which I was assisted by the erudite uh, uh, A. Campbell, uh, Alexander Campbell, uh, Walter Scott, whose acquaintance I made, but more particularly by Sidney Rigdon, who was a frequent visitor in my father's house. And so, uh, Maven, you had a thing by uh, uh, Dan. I just want to note here, she may have been mistaken about the date, but there were newspaper accounts about the Gold Bible in 1829, uh, or she could have heard about it by word of mouth. Yeah, and, and my only point here is, how does Rigdon never hear about it? Meanwhile, several of the folks in his congregation had, you would think that would be a conversation that's stirring and, mm -hmm. uh, and one that Rigdon would be interested in since he sort of had parted ways with the Campbellites and was taking on more of a restoration view. Yes, um, he seems to be overly denying things. It's like uh, the, yes. the, the lady doth protest too much, methinks. He's over-denying things, and if he's denying that he had ever heard about it before he met Joseph Smith in December of 1813, that would be odd, given his interest. I mean, he's a, a minister in Ohio, which isn't that far away from New York. There are newspaper reports. It was uh, in the news, as Dan Vogel has pointed out. So why does he deny knowing anything about it until he meets Joseph Smith when Eliza Snow, a member of his own congregation, says she'd heard about it in 1829? Yeah, and as I said, she's not the only one. Rigdon said, I never saw a sentence of the Book of Mormon. I never penned a sentence of the Book of Mormon. I never knew that there was such a book in existence as the Book of Mormon until it was presented to me by Parley P. Pratt in the form that it now is. And then I just note here, statements by Orson Hyde, Eliza Snow, Adamson Bentley, which we talked about last week, Alexander Campbell, and Darwin Atwater, who all had close associations with Rigdon when he was a minister before being introduced to Mormonism, all claimed that they knew about Mormonism 
uh, before Rigdon says he ever had any chance to even know about it. And as you're pointing out, RFM, that that just seems peculiar, uh, as well as newspaper like accounts. Ever having been in, pointed out. I'm sorry. It's kind of like he denies ever having been in Pittsburgh during the relevant. Meanwhile, time there's period. a letter at the and, post office. Right. Yes. He 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 yes. over denies, and when he over denies, and then is proven well, or at least suspected strongly, of not telling the truth, it makes him look like he could be lying about the other stuff as well. Yeah. And this isn't my comment. This was a copy and paste of, I don't know if it was Craig Criddle or who, but it's an advocate for the Rigdon Spalding theory. So I wouldn't have used the word undoubtedly. I think there is space to go, well, he just happened to not hear it when everyone else did. But it seems unlikely that Rigdon did not know about the Book of Mormon before Pratt handed him a copy. And so we just want to know, like, why? Like, that seems strange. Yeah, so everybody knows I'm not a proponent of this, the Solomon Spalding theory either. I don't believe it. But what we're doing is we're presenting the evidence that those who do believe it base their belief on. Yeah. All right. Um, let me put us back over to the side. So uh, now we're going to go into number four, uh, that witnesses can corroborate that the Book of Mormon and manuscript found had significant overlap in their narrative theme and characters, and that Rigdon's theology was within the Book of Mormon. And so we spent a little bit of time, I think this slide also showed up in last week's episode, but there's the Conneaut Witnesses. They are uh, living in the area that Solomon Spalding is living in. When the Mormon elders show up in 1832, and you had, you had said, I think the date, because you were referring to when the missionaries went to visit Parley Pratt, or Parley Pratt and the missionaries went to visit Sidney Rigdon, but this is actually a different occurrence when the missionaries go to Conneaut in uh, 14th or 15th of February, 1832, when the elders Orson Hyde and Samuel Smith delivered a sermon on the Book of Mormon, the people there at Conneaut were already pushing back against the Mormon elders saying, no, 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 we've heard this story before. This is Solomon Spaulding's story. Um, and then it's Hurlbut uh, comes to collect the affidavits from these uh, folks. But right. there's Adventure. evidence that when the missionaries showed up, they were, they were, oh no, please. Oh, go, please finish your sentence. It, uh, there's evidence that says that before Hurlbut ever gets involved, the folks in Conneaut are already speaking up, noticing similarities between what they remembered from Solomon Spaulding's manuscript and from the Book of Mormon that the Mormon elders were preaching from. Okay, thank you. I was just noting the interesting fact that that's dated 14th or 15th of February, 1832, which is right before the vision is given on February 16th of that year. The other thing that's interesting that I think it's an easy thing in that the quoted portion you have at the bottom on the left, it's an easy thing to make these broad allegations with no details. I want some freaking details. And maybe they provide them elsewhere, I don't know. But it's narrative followed the lines of Spalding's novel. Okay, in what way? The plot was the same. In what way? The names of the characters were the same. Which? The exact language was in many instances the same. Give us an example. You know what I mean? Yeah. These are just broad brushed allegations, which I do not find very credible just based upon this one quote that you have. 
Yeah, I know that, uh, and Dan, if you don't mind speaking up in the live chat, folks, if you're watching this not live, please turn on the live chat, pay attention there. Uh, not only are there great comments from various listeners, but Dan Vogel, a, uh, a very well-recognized scholar of Mormonism, is uh, participating uh, in the chat and sharing uh, historical uh, uh, information and uh, clarification of the things that we're talking about. There, there are witness statements from these witnesses. They do claim to uh, hear certain names from the Book of Mormon. Um, I, I don't remember which ones in particular, but there's also certain names that they don't Moroni remember. Moroni and Nephi. Yeah. The most famous ones that anybody who hasn't read the Book of Mormon at that time would have been familiar with. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does any of them even say then that on, they read the preaching Book of Mormon? Yeah, I don't know that because that was a whole nother, probably an hour worth of material just to go through what each of those folks had said. Uh, yeah. We sort of just summarized it here. And then on the right hand side, we've got my father, John N. Miller. This is dated December 9th, 1884. So note it is a, a late telling of this account. Uh, my father, John N. Miller. And then this is what it says. I have often heard him tell about the Nephites and Zarahemlites before the Book of Mormon was published. I well remember D.P. Hurlbut coming to our house about 50 years ago and his telling father that he was taking evidence to expose Mormonism and hearing him read from the Book of Mormon. Frequently, father would request Hurlbut to stop reading and he would state what followed and Hurlbut would say that it was so in the Book of Mormon. He expressed great surprise that father remembered so much of it Father told him that the manuscript found was not near all of Spalding's writings and that probably there would soon be another prophecy out. Father said he had no doubt the historical part of the Book of Mormon was Spalding's manuscript found. John Spalding, Solomon's brother, and also note Spalding is often spelled with a U in it, but it doesn't have a U in the actual spelling. John Spalding saw Solomon's brother lived half a mile from our house, and our families were quite intimate. I saw Father sign a statement and give it to Hurlbut. He had statements from Henry Lake, Aaron Wright, Dr. Howard of Conneaut. Hurlbut stayed two nights with the Mormon women of bad, very bad character who lived alone. It goes on and on there. But this witness remembers when she's a child, lots of years late, which are those are all problematic things. But the story's interesting. She remembers clearly that her dad knew what was in the Book of Mormon and could finish the sentence for Philastrius Hurlbut. Yeah, I don't believe that for a second. I just don't. Right. There's a similar story about Bruce R. McConkie. He was such a great scriptorian. If you pulled out any scripture in any of the standard works and quoted it to him, he could give you the reference and then quote the verse immediately preceding and immediately after. B.S. That never happened. And I don't. I put this story in the same category. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So there's that. All right. Now we're getting, I want to uh, we're getting towards the, ooh, let me go back here. So we're getting towards the, uh, I should say it's unlikely of, I consider yeah, it unlikely. There are that's, that's more scholarly yeah. way of putting it. <laughs> totally. And as you and I were talking, there are people who are anomalies and you said, that's the key word anomaly. There is this ran, you know, this very small, microcosm of human beings who, when you tell them 
tell me the weather on July 12th, 1964. They have sort of an, uh, 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 I don't want to say autistic, but the old term that used to be used was like idiot savant, uh, rain man. There are certain human beings who their brain actually does store all the information and it can be easily recalled. There are those people out there. It's possible, but highly, highly unlikely into the 99th point something percentile that that would be in 99 with multiple nines after the decimal. Um, Judge Wapner. Judge Wapner. Yeah. I, I like eight fish sticks, not four. Ooh. I get my underwear at Kmart. <laughs> yeah. So there we go. Um, textual and theological evidence implicating Rigdon. The, we've gone over some of this. Some of this will come uh, as we go forward here. The theology of Alexander Campbell, Rigdon's mentor, is sprinkled throughout the Book of Mormon. On those issues where Rigdon and Campbell disagreed prior to 1830, the Book of Mormon strongly endorses Rigdon's views. Sections of the Book of Mormon likely added after the loss of the first 160 pa 16 pages in June 1828 describe spiritual rebirth after baptism consistent with Rigdon's changed beliefs after meeting with Walter Scott in March of 1828. The phrase children of men appears with exceptionally high frequency in those parts of the Book of Mormon that contain theological content reflecting Rigdon's pre-1830 views. Rigdon is known to have worked with Smith to produce the Book of Moses. The phrase children of men appears with a high frequency in those parts of the Book of Moses that contain theological content reflecting Rigdon's pre-1830 views. And then it mentions here the Jocker study, which we'll get into, uh, which is a word text analysis, trying to figure out who the potential author of the Book of Mormon is. Um, Can I mention something about all I don't that stuff? To, oh, please. Mm -hmm. I yeah. was once in front of a judge arguing a motion, which didn't have any chance of success. And I just didn't have the evidence to support the motion that I was making, but I was giving it um, the old college try, so to speak. And at the point that I got done with my argument, the judge looked at me and said, Radio Free Mormon, I think you're hanging heavy weights from slender threads. It's all going to break here shortly. <laughs> That's kind of what I see with all this stuff. This looks like heavy weights from yeah. very slender threads. They're hanging there. Yeah. Yeah. I won't read the, uh, the, the part on the white background, but I do want to... Hop and then uh, pause the, oops, you can pause it and just go ahead and look at it then. Almost immediately after baptism, Rigdon acted as though he was in charge of the church, which we've been speaking about. As soon as he officially met Smith, they begin work on the book of Moses, a scripture that endorses Rigdon's 1828 discovery of spiritual rebirth after baptism. In March of 1828, the revelator of the book of commandments in the book of Mormon attempted to limit Smith's role to translation only. We mentioned that. Uh, in 1863, Rigdon said that Smith was supposed to be the translator in Rigdon, the gatherer of Israel. Uh, so there's that, and there's the quotes that support it. I'm going to make it big screen for just, oh, let me do that differently. Make it big screen for just a moment, folks, so that you can pause that if you want to stop it there and read it. Um, and then after that, Rigdon and Smith collaborated on joint revelations recorded in Doctrine and Covenants. We mentioned in section 76, but that's not really the only one. 
They collaborated in changing revelations after the fact, uh, which David Whitmer sort of uh, pointed to. Uh, they collaborated on illegal financial transactions, the Kirtland Safety Society. And then we get into Jocker's study. This was a word print analysis. I'm going to read this here. This tells you how this analysis was both done and uh, and then what the results were in very kind of layman terms. Comparing word usage in the Book of Mormon chapters to a handful of modern authors to see which modern author's style is closest to those in the Book of Mormon. This is the critical gap that seems to have confused a few people about this study. It's not a statistically valid test measuring the probability that either Solomon Spaulding or Sidney Rigdon is the author of a particular chapter, but a test that simply determines which of a tiny handful of authors, and by the way, Joseph Smith was not one of them because there's very little writing from Joseph Smith uh, prior to the publishing of the Book of Mormon. And so there isn't really a way to take Joseph's handwriting style prior to the publishing of the Book of Mormon and include it in the study. Now, since this study was done, there have been a few things that have been found of Joseph Smith, and I think they did do a second study. I don't have the results of that here. Um, which of the authors comes closest in style to each chapter of the Book of Mormon? Being the winner among a pool of seven is a far cry from being proven to be the actual culprit. In the case at hand, the authors have by a pool way, of seven. By the way, mm -hmm. at which point we should say, we should just walk away from the study and say, it can't really tell us anything of any value. No, no, no. It, just saying. It's interesting. But of course they've done yeah, the study, so we got to do something with it, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting uh, because it's going to tell us, um, but yes, this study wouldn't hold up anywhere uh, when you take seven people and don't include the most likely author in that group. But it says here, uh, the pool of seven where victory can be proclaimed if the results point to either of two authors. Well, four if we include Oliver Cowdery and Isaiah Malachi, gaining the first or second place slot. For the 239 chapters of the Book of Mormon, the uh, NSC, and I don't, again, I don't know all these terms, but it's the way in which they went about studying the, the uh, word print analysis. The methods assign a first place to... Wait a second, uh, what is it called Calgary, there in the, the parentheses after NSC? Shrunken roids. I don't know what that means, That's but I wish my roids were shrunken. You're talking over my, my <laughs> well, first line. I'm talking over yours. I said, I wish my roids were shrunken. What did you say? Uh, I didn't say anything. I just laughed because I heard you. There's a little bit of a delay, but I did hear you. Okay, sorry. No, no, it's no biggie. I thought you said um, something about Arnold so, Schwarzenegger. Oh, just the shrunken roids, but Arnold's roids, the steroids made him really big. It was the opposite. Oh, you were thinking all. of steroids. I was thinking of a different kind of roid. Oh, I got you. Yeah, but those I could use shrunken as well. <laughs> um, Oliver Cowdery gets first place in a chapter of the Book of Mormon 20 times. Parley Pratt, nine times. Rigdon, 93 times. Spalding, 52 times. Isaiah and Malachi 63 times. Barlow, who I don't know who that is, but Barlow gets zero times. And then the uh, uh, literate, the famous literary, uh, literature Longfellow two times. The Delta method, again, I don't know what the study method was. I'm not, I'm not really into word print analysis. Uh, the Delta method gives Cowdery five chapters, Pratt seven, Rigdon 63, Spalding 47, Isaiah Malachi 112, Barlow zero. 
in Longfellow 5. By the way, I, th- I thought this was interesting. I noted this to you before the show. The, uh, In fact, Isaiah and Malachi are assigned two far more chapters than one would expect. They're not just the Isaiah chapters. But this uh, is downplayed by the Jocker study. They don't really want to emphasize that. 21 of the 22 chapters taken by Isaiah or Malachi are properly assigned to Isaiah and Malachi. But the one exception is Deutero-Isaiah, 3rd Isaiah, Isaiah 53, which is quoted by Abinadi. It's the only chapter of Isaiah that biblical scholars believe is attributed to a 3rd Isaiah, which makes its way into the Book of Mormon. And when they do the word print analysis, it's the only chapter assigned to a different author than Isaiah and Malachi, to some extent substantiating that it isn't the original Isaiah who wrote it, and it actually is a third author writing chapter 53. I thought that was well, sort of interesting. Well, that's the problem with a... these kind of studies, right? Because if we, if we follow this to its logical conclusion, we must conclude that Longfellow wrote Isaiah chapter 53. What's Longfellow's first name? Is it Henry? Longfellow, poem. Wadsworth. I was going to look that up. Henry Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. See, I do Longfellow I do know a fact or two inside serenade. my head. I'm sorry, what? I said I do know a fact or two inside my head outside of Mormonism. You you've got that all those arenas so captured, but I I sort of remembered right. there was a Henry Longfellow somewhere. You're right. So we yeah. need to sing some Neil Diamond. Look at that. Which song are we singing? Longfellow Serenade. Oh, okay. You know that they, song, they, right? You're doing. No, I, I'm not, oh my not really gosh, a Neil Diamond so good, fan. It's not. It's one of his best. I love that song. I'll have to play it when we get done here. I'll uh, I'll give it a listen. Sure um, I'm going to put up on the screen here. You're not going to be able to make much sense of this, but up at the top, you can see different color codes for different authors. Down below is the color attributed to which each chapter of the Book of Mormon. Again, I can't even tell this, but. Spalding, Rigdon make up the majority of it outside of Isaiah and Malachi. And then at the very bottom of each of those uh, graphs is a different book in the Book of Mormon. So, you know, uh, first Nephi, second Nephi, Jacob, Mosiah, it goes on and on. Again, folks can dive into that if they want to, but essentially it just represents the data we just said, which is that outside of Isaiah and Malachi, uh, Spalding and Rigdon, uh, are heavily emphasized out of the study of seven people, not including Joseph Smith. And as you pointed out, RFM, the study is so limited that it really shouldn't be meant to mean anything because as you pointed out, Longfellow would then be the author of Third Isaiah. So it looks like all these guys, with the exception of Barlow, got together in a smoke-filled room and cobbled together the Book of Mormon. Yeah, these seven guys with Joseph Smith not there. Right, he didn't even have to be involved. No, unnecessary. That's why he's just a just a translator. He's not the spokesman. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And I do have a delay, so I'm super sorry about that. Number five is any credibility issues with Rigdon's character, as well as any other facets that would be better explained, better understood if the Spalding theory were true. So things that hurt Sidney Rigdon's uh, integrity, he self-admits that he faked his spiritual experience to get into the Baptist church in 1817. Remember, it was 1816 when he had missing letters uh, at the post office that he needed to claim. 
Rigdon admitted that he invented a conversion experience so that he would be accepted into the Baptist church in 1817. He said, quote, when I joined the church, I knew I could not be admitted without an experience. So I made one up to suit the purpose, but it was all made up and was of no use. So because it was a made up religion, no big deal with me making up an experience. So here's the deal. That seems, um, what? No, 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 go ahead. What do you think it seems first? And then I'll give my two cents. Uh, I, I promise I'm not interrupting you. I promise I'm delayed by a second or two. And uh, that's causing it. It seems as though Sidney Rigdon has no problem being dishonest. Okay. I will tell you that this not only conclusively proves that Sidney Rigdon was involved with Joseph Smith in creating the Book of Mormon. It also proves that Sidney Rigdon was involved in the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Okay. Please, please say more. It doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove he was involved in anything criminal or wrong. You know what I mean? People want to look at that and say, ah, he's a freaking liar, so he's lying about this. It doesn't prove that at all. I mean, he could be lying about anything. If he's guilty of this crime, why couldn't he be guilty of every crime or any crime that's ever been committed in the history of mankind? That's why I find this not impressive, this particular quote. And then uh, John Wycliffe Rigdon, Sidney's son, he says, my father looked at me a moment, raised his hand above his head, and slowly said with tears glistening in his eyes, my son, I can swear before high heaven that what I have told you about the origin of the Book of Mormon is true. Your mother is on his deathbed? sister, I think so. Um, your mother and his sister, I'm sorry, your mother and sister, Mrs. Athalia Robinson, were present when that book was handed to me in Mentor, Ohio. And all I ever knew about the origin of the Book of Mormon was what Parley Pratt, Oliver Cowdery, Joseph Smith, and the witnesses who claimed they saw the plates have told me. And in all of my intimacy with Joseph Smith, he never told me but one story. Uh, yeah, that was that. Um, so John or so Sidney Rigdon's son says, Hey, my dad didn't do this. This my dad told me on his deathbed that everything is in the up and up, and uh, we should trust the story as it came to us. But the trouble I want to add here is that Sidney Rigdon's grandson. Uh, has a little different story. I'm going to try to make this bigger, and hopefully I can read this. Um, so this is, let's see here. I don't have the name of the grandson. Trying to find it. This writing is super small. Um, but oh, Walter, sorry, Mr. Walter Sidney Rigdon is a, is a citizen of Carrollton, Catawba County, New York, and a grandson of Sidney Rigdon the partner of Joe Smith. Um, Where are you reading? He says, so I was reading the very top left under editor Tribune. I was reading that little section there, uh, just a piece of it, just to note who the person was. And then down below is where the quote starts. Grandfather was a religious crank, says Mr. Rigdon. <laughs> till, he, till he lost money by it. He started in as a Baptist preacher and had a very fine congregation for those days in Pittsburgh. Didn't there they was quote no that line in the Temple Endowment before 1990? 
that grandfather was a religious crank? Satan looks at the camera and says, ah, fine congregation. Oh, okay. I, no, I didn't go back then, and I haven't really read up on the original endowment ceremony. Other than, uh, oh, what's his name? There's the, um, oh, I'm not going to come up with it, but it's a thick book that goes through all the changes in the temple over time. Uh, well, I didn't have to read it, Dottie. I lived it. You lived it. I was going to, if, if we were up on the screen, I was going to split my throat there to, to symbolize that. But um, he says uh, in Pittsburgh, he says there was no reason at all for his leaving, except he got cracked at the time. He had no ideas. And when they say cracked, he suffered a head injury and multiple people reported that Sidney Rigdon uh, sort of suffered from mental instability. He would kind of go off the tracks and, uh, say things that didn't make sense at times. And we saw more of that after the tar and feathering incident. Uh, but people reported that Sydney would at times sort of lose his mental stability. Um, so it says at the time he had no ideas of making money. Indeed, while he was with the Mormons, his chances of making money were good enough for most men, but he came out of it as poor as he went in. So then the uh, author of the article, J.H. Beadle, says, but how did he change first? And Sidney's grandson said, well, he tried to understand the prophecies. And the man who does that is sure to go crazy. He studied the prophets and baptism. And of course, he got rattled. Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelations will rattle any man who gives his whole mind to him. At any rate, they did him. And he joined Alexander Campbell. Campbell then believed that the end of the world was nigh. His millennial uh, harbinger shows that they rattled all who listened to them and in Ohio and other places. Then grandfather got disgusted and decided on a new deal. He found Joe Smith and they had a great many talks together before they brought out the plates. None of us, none of us. So he's speaking of his family and he's talking in a way that indicates that they all sort of agree. So he says, uh, none of us ever doubted that they got the whole thing up, but father always maintained that grandfather helped get it, get up the original Spalding book. At any rate, he got a copy very early and schemed on some way to make it useful. Although the family knew these facts, again, he claims to know that people in the family all sort of generally know that this is true. Even though the family knew these facts, they refused to talk on the subject while grandfather lived. In fact, he and they took on a huge disgust at the... Uh, I don't see what that, I don't have the spot there that grandfather lived. In fact, they took on the huge disgust at the whole subject. Sorry, I have it twice so we could make sure that that was all together. Grandfather died at Friendship, Allegheny County, New York in 1870. Mm -hmm. As we discussed, that does raise the question as to how this whippersnapper of a grandson even knows that this is the case if nobody in his family talked about it. Right. And it's maybe he's implying that behind closed doors we talked about it, but out in public we never said a word. Um, yeah, but it does if he meant certainly. That, he should have said that, right? Uh, his uh, let's see here. Uh, over eighty-six years old. I'm sorry, over eighty years old. His son Sidney, my father, was born at Mentor in eighteen twenty-seven, and remembers the stirring times of Mormonism. He lives where I do. Grandfather had preached to his old neighbors in Allegheny and taken converts to Nauvoo. So after the breakup in 1844, he returned to live at, at, at Friendship. For a while, he spoke of Mormonism as an attempt to improve Christianity, but the later phases of the thing in Utah were totally different 
from what he had taught his daughter, Nancy Rigdon. Again, this is the happiness letter. This is, uh, if, if you're to believe, I think the best framing for the history, uh, Joseph Smith approached Nancy Rigdon, Sidney Rigdon's daughter, uh, trying to manipulate her into an intimate relationship and then sent a letter around town to embarrass her, uh, essentially, which the church to this day still uses called the happiness letter. Uh, his daughter, Nancy Rigdon. And she rejected him vociferously. Yeah. Uh, Nancy Rigdon is now Miss Mrs. Ellis of Pittsburgh, and her husband is a journalist in that city. Her testimony against Joe Smith is very strong. The prophet was no doubt a thoroughly bad man. Uh, I only report that part of Mr. Rigdon's talk, which shows this is the newspaper guy now. Uh, the Mr. Rigdon's talk, which shows the history of the Golden Bible as accepted in the family. Of course, if Sidney Rigdon had wanted the world to believe the Smith story of the plates, he would have told them so. But but though the family do not care to ventilate ventilate it, it uh, he evidently taught them to treat the whole thing as a fraud. J. H. Beadle. New York, April 7th, 1888. So I think it's at right. least her, interesting that the grandson did that. J.H. Beadle Sorry. will come to his conclusion that he's been angling for regardless of what the evidence is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, it's, it's a big deal. Sidney Rigdon taught his family to treat the story of the gold Bible as a fraud. Right. Yeah, that was that was the necessary statement the uh, the whole time for the editor of the paper. It is, it is amazing how often if you just put a bunch of statements or facts or pseudo facts and then draw a conclusion at the end, lots of times people will just believe the conclusion without seeing how it compares with the evidence that you have just deduced. Yeah. Yep. All right. So let me put up on the screen uh, historical evidence connecting Rigdon to Spalding into the fabrication of the Book of Mormon. I'll just leave that there for a moment. You can pause that and read it. Textual and theological evidence. Again, these have various strengths and weaknesses to them, uh, implicating Rigdon. Uh, we went over some of that earlier. Historical evidence connecting Rigdon to Smith before 1830, and historical evidence for long-term relationship between Rigdon and Smith. We went into all of this. I'm just putting it up as sort of a synopsis of all the areas that we went into over the course of these two episodes. And then uh, I want to just, I'm sorry, I should get closer. I'm sorry about that. I hope folks could hear that. I put my mic a few inches away from my face and it didn't pick it up that well. Uh, Dan Vogel, who's been in the live chat this episode in the last, uh, this he, pre he presented to us uh, his thoughts and insights on the data that we were sharing. I shared with him a copy of our Google slideshow and uh, he made a ton of notes. It's He's also contributed a ton in the chat with uh, his insights. Uh, again, I'm not going to go into all of these per se, but I will put them up for a moment. You're welcome to pause them. I'm going to make the screen bigger. And uh, you guys can pause and read each of those. So there's that one. The next page is here. And this one is the final uh, page to, to look at. And so you can pause that and look. And then uh, that's all of his feedback. And again, I'm hoping that we will have uh, him on uh, to have have a conversation uh, with us. I think there might be one more page. Let me see here. Yeah, there's that. And that's it. All right. Um, gone through all of it. The best of it. I think it is the best 
this evidence. I even talked to Dan on the phone today, and he said there's lots more you could have shared, but you did present for the moment was the best evidence in favor of the theory. Uh, your thoughts on the rig building theory now that we're on the back end of this? Yes, and this is what we've been trying to do in these two episodes is to steel man this argument to present the evidence as fairly as we can that is used by proponents of the Solomon Spaulding theory to support that theory. So we've done our best, and by the, by we, I mean you, Bill, because you did all this research. You've done all this incredible research and in finding out what it is that are the elements of the evidence. So I think that this has been very helpful to me because I've never gone into it in this depth. And the way it's been helpful to me is to see what the strongest evidence is for the proponents of the Solomon Spaulding theory and to realize that in my mind, it comes up short of the mark. Yeah, sorry, I was getting the the call in studio here uh, situated. So um, let me, I'm gonna have to mute that. Okay, so by the way, same to what you were just saying, as I, when I encountered this issue, I, I said, okay, I'll take on the Spalding Rigdon theory. Let me really dive into it, see what's there. I probably went through at least a hundred sources. Uh, and again, we have the ones that were most significant are in the footnotes. They'll be in the footnotes of this episode. They're already in the footnotes of the episode one. I was impressed. There was enough there that I could see why people give credibility to it. I can see why the human mind could be easily drawn to believe it. Uh, as I've had conversations with you, as I've explored the evidence, as I've heard Dan Vogel's thoughts, like you, it comes up short for me. I don't come. It's it's like missing. It's missing something. It's missing something more substantial that would like evidence. Just Push it over the edge. Well, yeah, well, sure. <laughs> and, and there are. I'm sorry. There are. No, it's okay. There are significant flaws. And one of them we talked about last week, which is if Joseph and Sydney are in on it, Joseph has to send Parley Pratt and the missionaries to find Sydney. And you have to depend on those men going to see him and that all working out the way you hope. Lots of things. It would seem as if you say, Parley, I need you to go talk to Rig. Now, again, they sort of knew each other. Maybe they would have bumped into each other regardless. And Joseph's depending on that. Maybe Rigdon says, hey, Joseph, trust me. Send Parley Pratt. He'll come visit me. I know it for sure. Send him to the area. Um, maybe. But if not, then you now require an extra layer where now Parley Pratt's in on it. And I think there's multiple points in this evidence where something just isn't right. It, the witnesses, their late remembrances, and Hurlbut's got his influence. The mm -hmm. the Henry Rangdon newspaper really isn't saying anything about Spalding. It's just saying that Joseph is involved with Rigdon in the treasure digging activities. Um, when you talk about the neighbors of Joseph Smith, they're not really able able Chase and Lorenzo. They're not really trustworthy because they've been critical of Joseph Smith ever since he got the plates and didn't share it with them from the treasure digging activities. Um, th there's lots of reasons to doubt each piece of evidence. Can I bring, bring up a big hole in this theory that just occurs to me? Okay. Please. So the conspirators in this theory have to be enlarged to include all of the individuals 
who were part and parcel of and witnesses to and close to the translation of the Book of Mormon because Sidney Rigdon was there and he had something and a lot apparently to do with this whole translation project. And so all the people who saw Sidney Rigdon in connection with Joseph Smith, planning this out, plotting it out, or just being together, have to maintain silence. That's part of the conspiracy too, is that they would have to be silent. And the big hole that just occurred to me is that David Whitmer is one of these. David Whitmer, I mean, a lot of translation of the Book of Mormon happened in the log cabin, right? Right, of his family. So he's right there. David Whitmer is on the ground observing all this stuff from 1829 forward. And we know that he gets upset by Sidney Rigdon coming in and exercising all this influence over Joseph Smith to the point where David Whitmer ends up leaving the church. If there is anybody who would have been in a position to observe Sidney Rigdon colluding with Joseph Smith about the Book of Mormon, it would have been David Whitmer. And if there's any person who would have been more likely to call that out and mention it in his pamphlet later on, it would have been David Whitmer. So that's why I think that's a big hole in the theory, or at least it's a huge question mark in the theory that I don't think has been adequately addressed. And now apparently this is the Radio Free Mormon program. And I'm flying solo now. Oh, there's Bill. Hi, Bill. Yeah, my roadcaster just, there was a squeaky sound and it just died. And then I had to shut it down and turn it back on. But here we are. A I'm going to try it. Sound? It, it, yeah, it happened when I connected the call-in studio to the roadcaster. So I'm going to try it again. If this fails, I'm just going to let you close out the show because we won't be taking phone calls and it'll take me a minute to get back in but I'm going to give it a shot. So let's see what happens here. Okay. You're still there and I can, that didn't happen again. So let's, I think we might be in business. All right. Okay, great. Let's try. Let's see if we got any phone calls. We don't. The number is there at the bottom. If you do want to call in 662-667-6667 or 662-MORMONS. If you had anything you wanted to say about the Spalding Rigdon theory, I don't really want to take phone calls of people who want to get on a future episode and talk about polygamy. I really do want to stick with talking about Spalding. What did happen with that? Has anything transpired? Because at the end yep. of last week's episode, what Bill is referring to is Clark Abood calling and wanting to uh, throw down the gauntlet to debate us publicly about whether Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. We mentioned that that was actually something that Michelle Stone has promised to do with you in regards to the land deeds. And that has been mediated through a third party, but she has committed to do that. Uh, anything happened since then that you can tell the audience about? Yeah. So Clark shared with me uh, his notes. I began doing research on them this week. Uh, I started looking at each one of the points he wanted to make, went into the original documents. There is a few of the points that I thought were interesting. I think they'd be a, a cool thing for an audience to see. But most of the evidence that he had was really just evidence of Brigham Young's hostile takeover after Joseph Smith's death. So I called Clark today and had a phone conversation with him, said that really what I would like to do is, one is there's these conversations with Michelle Stone about the land deeds. I know that at one point you were going to 
have a conversation about the Nauvoo Expositor, and I think that sort of fell by the wayside uh, on their end. But um, I'm happy to talk with Clark, but what I want to do first before I ever talk about all these things in the weeds that he's got is I want somebody to do what we did in the episode that demonstrated Joseph Smith was the author of polygamy. I want somebody to put the very best evidence together and uh, and be easy enough to work with that you will show that to us, allow us to do our research, allow us to come up with our uh, best follow-up questions that will examine whether that those sources really do say what you say they do. Um, and if somebody's willing to work with us in that way, I think that would be a dynamic episode for the audience. But this material, at least right now, wasn't it. And I told Clark that, and I don't mean this rudely or anything, drawing board, and that it would be more of, I really want the best evidence that Joseph Smith wasn't a polygamist. I don't really want evidence that Brigham Young did a hostile takeover. You and I already sort of agree with that from your mm -hmm. episodes of, of Apostolic Coup d'Etat, which Clark uh, referenced in his notes. He had heard that too. The interesting thing about Clark, I'll just say, is that he's not Mormon. He thinks Joseph Smith is a fraud, but he also believes that Joseph Smith is not the originator of polygamy. And I thought that's a pretty interesting perspective to take. And so mm -hmm. he was kind and considerate, and I tried to be kind and considerate. And I think that if he can come up with something that I think would be more it's conducive to actually showing our audience the very best evidence in a clear way. Uh, I'm willing to engage that, but as of right now, it's on the back burner. Thank you for the update. If it hasn't been clear to the audience, I'll make it clear now. Any, uh, I have uh, had certain experiences with this issue last year, such that I am completely uninterested in pursuing this in any forum in any kind of dialogue or discussion with people who believe that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy. It's the same feeling I have about debating people about whether the earth is flat. And it's not just that, it's just this whole uh, imbroglio about what happened. So all I'm saying is that you have agreed to go on and uh, talk about the deeds with Michelle Stone, specifically the deeds, the land deeds in Nauvoo. As for me and my part, if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. <laughs> and I did tell Clark, I said, even if he comes up with a really good presentation, I, I like this. This is, this is compelling to the same extent that the Sydney Rigdon Solomon Spalding. It's interesting, right? Um, I said, there's no way we'll probably do this for Mormonism live. We couldn't even do it in an hour, an hour and a half. Anyway, this would have to be some sort of like Mormon discussion, multi-hour. We just have a soft I mean Mormon stories casual uh no no well yeah maybe seven hours but I was saying Mormon discussion um where we do you know three hours of just really taking our time being kind to each other and trying to go through the evidence we'll see if it happens maybe it does maybe it doesn't um but but Clark is now off trying to find the best evidence which wasn't in my opinion what he brought to the table I think that often the problem we run into when we're having these kind of discussions regardless of whether it's religion or politics, is that uh, oftentimes one or both of the people come into the discussion slash debate with the idea that they're going to convert the other person to their point of view, which I think is a mistake, instead of just trying to present what they believe and why it is that they believe it. Yeah. I would like them to do with 
polygamy what we did with the Rigdon Spalding theory, just to gently give the evidence, explain what we saw as interesting, compelling, what we saw as uh, sort of problematic and uh, doesn't really work that well. And we're covering it. We're covering the Joseph Smith and polygamy because it's a, a huge part of what's going on in Mormonism right now. And we're covering the Solon Spalding theory because that is a huge part of the history of Mormonism. So I can't, I'm not able to come to a conclusion about it unless I examine the evidence in support of it. Yeah. And I feel like this, these two episodes gave me the chance to do that. So I feel really good about it. Somebody asked in the show comments, if I got half of the references that you give, and I will say, no, I don't get half. I would say it's somewhere in the range of maybe 15 to maybe 20% if I'm lucky of the references that you give. Um, I appreciate them. I know the audience does, but I'm just self-admitting my own lack of uh, intelligence around uh, literature and movies and other things. So just I know a little about some very, very discreet areas of things. That's all I know. There's tons of things that you could talk about that I wouldn't get. Anything about, you know, you're talking about football and the Browns a few episodes ago, and I'm not saying anything. Yeah. Um, and I want to say one more thing about Spalding and Rigdon, and then we'll go to the phone lines. Bryce Blankenagel did an interview with John DeLynn like five years ago. And in his closing comment, he said, you know, I used to be uh, an advocate or a fan or a believer in the Spalding-Rigdon theory. And again, this was five years ago. Today, I'm much more neutral. Um, and I think that's interesting. Bryce Blankenagel, I deeply respect as a historian of Mormonism. He's produced a podcast that has put out a lot of historical content, more than you and I have covered. Um, what Bryce said in his closing comments was, no matter where you come down, the reasonability of the Spalding-Rigdon theory is by far a more rational explanation for the Book of Mormon than the faithful explanation of the Book of Mormon. And when he said that, I was like, he's right. Like that, this theory has way less problems than going through Joseph Smith's treasure digging and gold plates and angels and uh, all the story to get a translation and to put the Book of Mormon out. Uh, Spalding Rigdon explains how the Book of Mormon came forward better with less problems than the faithful orthodox view of what the church claims. Got it. I also want to add to this that as part of this, we've been in contact with an individual who we're not going to name, but uh, this person's a scholar, very interested in the Solomon Spaulding theory and believes, I'll just go ahead and say it's a he, and he believes that, um, He's come up with some information, some evidence, some new evidence that really weighs heavily in the Solomon Spalding theory's favor. He offered to share the unpublished manuscript. <laughs> I'm sorry, the manuscript found. Um, no, the manuscript of his uh, book that's set to be published. If we would agree to not talk about that stuff, I said, uh, let's not do that because I don't want to try and keep track of the stuff we can talk about versus the stuff we can't talk about because. My experience has been with me, that's a one-way ticket to disaster because I'll end up accidentally mentioning the stuff I'm not supposed to talk about. So I just want everybody to know that there is a book that is to be published in the near future that purports to give new evidence that may 
may uh, make the Solomon Spalding theory more plausible than it is. Yep, and I also look forward to uh, Dan and uh, Bryce being on the show here at some future point. So I, I want to say thank you, by the way, to Dan Vogel for yes. being uh, in the chat for the last two episodes. Uh, it's been a lot of work for you to to put those comments out, but that has helped us and helped the audience to understand sort of how a historian or scholar uh, sees the various aspects of this theory. And so I thank you a, a lot for participating at that level. Thank you. And I, and I know that there is some, I don't know, uh, we got 388 people watching. It hasn't been over 500. This is part two of a Solomon Spaulding theory. This is a subject that people may be done with. They may not want to hear anything more. But if Bill is successful in getting Dan Vogel to come on the show and talk about it with Bryce Blankenagel, I would ask in the live chat if you would let us know if that's something that you would be interested in seeing or if you've had enough of the subject and want to move on to something else now. I did not go to lip reading school, Mr. I'm Real. really sorry, Mr. Our Free Mormon. I think you were saying uh, something very complimentary about me, though. I was saying that you, uh, you're brilliant, and uh, I deeply appreciate you uh, as a co-host. So That's what I thought. Yeah. Let's go to the phone lines. We've got one call and then we'll end the show. It looks like it is a a Scott. Scott, are you there? Hi. How are you? Okay, how are you? Good, good. What uh, you're on the show? What are your thoughts about the Spalding Rigdon theory? Um I just want to say I'm filled. I just got home uh from a Unitarian church where we were doing a build your own theology um, discussion and I saw that this was on and I watched last week and I, um, and I'm filled with resentment and excitement. And the resentment reason about me and excitement about Bill is because you guys sent me down a conspiracy rabbit hole last week. And I was up so late into the night um, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you fine. I was I was up so late into the night following the finer points of this. I was fascinated by this, and I thought you know, I've I've you know heard of some other kind of sort of side marginal theory to explain something that's conspiracy or conspiratorial that has an alternate explanation that sounds vaguely plausible and then the more time that i spent at it the more that i felt like oh i know this feel this was it feels it feels like this it feels like i'm just going deeper and deeper and deeper into a rabbit warren and it's not really making sense um but i, I was fascinated by it so the reason i'm excited the resentment was i was being playful i thought it was really great of you guys to present this and um but i was just up so late looking into this and then the excitement is i want to see what else you have to say tonight and i just got home so i'm looking forward to, to hearing the rest of it okay well great scott thank you so much i'm glad it is it excited your curiosity at least you know i have a similar feeling but it's a little bit different the further i get into the solomon spaulding theory i feel like i'm getting deeper and deeper into a one-inch puddle of water. Um, I do think it's great, though, that <laughs> when we go over things, RFM, 
it really does lead people to sort of appreciate, man, how expansive and complex and deep Mormon history is. And you and I always remark, uh, yeah, thank you, Phil, for the for the $20 uh, super chat. Um, you and I always remark. Can I just say... Can I just say that you guys um, and uh, other Mormon, ex-Mormon podcasts have done such a good um, set of explorations of how the Book of Mormon was created based on the, the historical context, the other sources available to Joseph Smith, the, um, the various historical, you know, the sort of mythological um, ideas of early white Americans trying to explain the existence of Native Americans. And so that stuff is so rich and to me so much more compelling, so much more well-documented. And this seemed to me like it, it's sort of one of those little dangly things that you can grab onto. But then, wait a minute, there's all this other rich, interesting exploration of uh, Mormon history that and I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm not Mormon or ex-Mormon. I'm just fascinated by the podcast. So I just want to, I just wanted to say that there's so much you've done to, to help people understand where, how this book could have or was constructed. And this was like, oh, they've taken me off on this side thing and played with me. And now I have to, now I'm compelled to watch the rest of it. Um, even though I, I'm going to probably end up believing that it really doesn't make much sense. So, yeah, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Scott. Thank you. So I was trying to say that Mormonism really is so fascinating. 200 years of just the craziest stories and these deep history and such good documentation that even though I'm, you know, I've left, you, you've stepped away from activity uh, in belief. I won't put words in your mouth. Um, Yet every week, like we have fun diving into some other aspect of it and it never ends. And you and I, to this day, we still learn things, um, which is sort of incredible considering all the time and hours, energy, resources we put into uh, learning about this religion and still to be caught off guard by really significant facts and data points. Um, it, it's really a lot of fun to bring that to the audience. And I hope folks that this helps you, no matter what your feelings are about Mormonism, I hope this helps you appreciate how interesting and deep uh, the history of Mormonism is and fascinating and entertaining to some degree. Anything else from you, RFM? No, I think that's it. I want, to, I want to once again applaud your research on this and you're bringing forward all these facts. If we can get Dan Vogel and Monsieur Blankenagel to meet at an agreed upon hour for pistols at dawn, we will do that. If, if everybody wants it, I saw one comment saying that they would like it. Um, so uh, we'll see if we can do that. But uh, there's many other things to talk about. Uh, Dan says, Dan Vogel says, the Spalding theory dominated the 19th century and distracted more fruitful research. Yeah, mm -hmm. it certainly did. It dominated it. And so because people had to come up with an explanation for where the heck did the Book of Mormon come from? because they felt Joseph Smith could not have written it on his own, which may have been the assumption that was an error that led them down this rabbit hole, if it is indeed a rabbit hole, and I tend to think it is. But um, then coming back and saying, well, it wasn't that difficult, really, okay? 
It was all around Joseph Smith. And the fact is, at the time when Joseph Smith is writing a book that explains the origin of the Native Americans in exactly the same way that pretty much everybody already believed the origin of the Native Americans to be, it was going to find a receptive audience in the early 19th century because it's preaching what they already believe. As time has gone on and we've moved away from those beliefs about the origins of the Native Americans, two things happen. One of which is the Book of Mormon isn't teaching us something that we already believe when we read it because we don't believe that anymore. But the second thing is it sounds a lot more unique. Um, I know I'm not supposed to say more unique. It sounds more unusual than it did to the original uh, readers. And so now it sounds exotic and incredible. And who on earth would just make this up because it's so fantastic? With Because we don't realize that's what everybody believed back then. So it has a positive when we get away from it. It makes it look unique. But when we get back into the history of what people believed at the time, we realize that it fits in just like a jigsaw puzzle, just that, like that last jigsaw puzzle into the whole puzzle that you've been looking for, and it fits right in perfectly, right in the middle. Uh, I just want to there yeah. you go, Dan. Uniquer. <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you to uh, one of the commenters, Badass Peacemaker, is the name he goes under. He just uh, sent $400 this way. And so I just want to say thank you very much. Uh, folks, uh, we said this last week. Our largest donor, uh, at least for a time, is dropping, uh, has to drop off, kind of pull back his donations. And uh, we sent out a, a mass email to all of our subscribers to our mailing list. Uh, we've made up about half of that difference. Um, we would really welcome donations to help keep the podcast going. You can go to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button, uh, send us again, five bucks a month or 10 bucks a month. It's so appreciated. Uh, whatever you can do, and if you can do more, we would we would deeply appreciate that. But thank you to all the folks who donate uh, to the podcast to to help us do this week in and week out to be able to have the time to put this kind of research in. Uh, I I talk to RFM several times a week. We are all working on different projects and uh, putting a lot of hours into trying to give you uh, the most informative content that we can. And I think we're really good at uh, exploring the history. Uh, I think Radio Free Mormon is maybe the best podcaster in Mormonism uh, at providing an entertaining telling of the history. And I hope that uh, folks, if you'll help support the shows that, that he is part of, I appreciate that. I will say when we are done with the Rigdon Spalding theory, I probably will never come back to it again uh, because I think at that point we've, we pretty much have scrubbed the bottom unless this new book has something major revealing in it. So uh, yeah, when a guy who donates $400, like Badass Peacemaker, says more Dan Vogel, then damn it, we're going to give you more Dan Vogel. Yeah, sounds good. Or he's probably going to want his cut now. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to have a, do a finder fee or something. Uh, RFM, I deeply appreciate being a co host with you in creating stuff here in this space. And we have a lot of fun. And um, I really enjoy your friendship too. And I hope you have a great week. And uh, uh, take it easy. And uh, can't wait to talk to you again. It'll probably be tonight at around two in the morning. That's yeah, sounds good. Let me know when you're finished. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Bye, everybody. Have a great day, everyone.